on ABC Radio. You're with Michael Pavlich. The Royal Flying Doctor Service, what an incredible service it's been. A little bit about the history, the colourful history, in fact, of the inception of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And we're joined this morning by Lana Mitchell, who's the Communications Director for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. It's an amazing story, really, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And there are a couple of things that we, I would like to talk about, <laughs> how it came about in, in a sense. I and mean, obviously we associate Flynn, John Flynn, with the Flying Doctor Service, and he's the one recognised on our $20 note and as being, I suppose, the visionary behind it. But there are a number of other people who are pretty important in the story of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. One of those is a fellow called Lieutenant Clifford Peel. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what he had to do with it and how he influenced the formation of the service? Well, Peel was a, a friend of Flynn's and um, there's actually a, a little bit of a link here. So, um, the Royal Flying Doctor Service is 95 this year and if you go back over 100 years ago, some 105 years ago, uh, Flynn knew Lieutenant Peel, who at that time was um, uh, a good friend and also an aviator. And uh, Flynn uh, was given the idea in a letter um, from Peel um, that maybe an aviation service of some, of some sort could be a solution to the health access problems that Australia suffered. Now, there's a really good story, actually, that goes just the year before, which inspired both Peel and Flynn. Uh, it was 1917, and there was a young stockman, young, about 29 years old or so. His name was Jimmy Darcy, and he lived in the Kimberleys. And um, the story goes that there was a stampede of cattle. They were moving cattle. There was a stampede, and... Uh, young Jimmy Darcy came off his horse and ended up being really badly injured um, under the cattle's feet. And so they took him by dray uh, 80 kilometres to Halls Creek, which was the closest um, yep. uh, settlement. And postmaster, um, the postmaster at Halls Creek, uh, his name was Fred Tuckett. So there's no doctor there or vet? No, matter. no. So it was just an outpost, you yeah. know. There was a postmaster, and um, at that time they operated with Morse code. Um, they had no radio. Yeah. Um, and uh, Fred Tuckett uh, contacted the doctor in Perth uh, through Morse code, through the telegraph, and the doctor in Perth, some 2,800 kilometres away, um, gave him instructions on how to do surgery on Jimmy Darcy. In, in Morse um, code. <laughs> In Morse code, which no Tuckett did uh, on the kitchen table with a pen knife and some morphine on poor Darcy. Um, and he had – there's two co – there's conflicting stories. One of them was that he had a ruptured spleen. Um, another was um, ruptured bladder. Anyway, there was definitely internal injuries. And apparently, um, as this surgery was done um, uh, very methodically um, with some assistance of those locally and with these Morse code instructions, uh, apparently Darcy survived and, and the surgery was deemed to be a success. Um, but the doctor uh, who was in Perth, his name was Dr. Joe Holland, uh, he decided to try to do a mercy dash to see if he could get up there to assist and make sure that this young bloke was going to be okay. Yeah. And so he did this long trip. Um, it was he took a cattle ship to Derby, which took a week, and then um, he drove 
a Model T Ford six days, um, the 40 kilometres um, to Halls Creek. Yeah. So the car broke down after punctures and you name it. Um, he ended up walking for two hours to the closest cattle station and finally um, took the last leg by horseback uh, through the night. But by the time he arrived at Horse Creek, um, Jimmy Darcy had died just two or three hours beforehand. Uh, and so this story, because it was the postmaster that had done this surgery and was trying to keep Jimmy Darcy alive, um, the postmaster had been essentially giving reports to the whole of Australia through Telegraph through <laughs> right. these reports. And so, so you know... There was a bit of interest in the story. It was, yeah, so it was, it was of national interest mm. about what was happening with Jimmy Darcy, the poor, the poor sod. Um, so that story was what inspired Flynn and then Peel to look at, well, how do we solve the fact of this, this, as they call it, tyranny of distance? How do you solve the fact that in, when somebody uh, runs into trouble somewhere in this large continent, how do we get them medical help? And, of course, our country doesn't get smaller. It's the size it is. Our technologies get better over time. But access to anybody that lives within rural and remote Australia can sometimes be difficult. And so that was the inspiration um, for both Peel and for Flynn to try to look into aviation. Well, now, now, Peel, Peel was a, an aviator himself, wasn't he? He was a pilot. He was, but he went off to war uh, and he never returned. And so um, from from that point, it was just a simple letter, which was, um, you know, has at this point, some 95 years later, is considered to have been really keen in suggesting to mm. Flynn that he looked at aircraft. And it took- I, wonder, I wonder if the fact that he was lost in war maybe drove Flynn a little bit harder, in a sense, the, the fact that Peel, well Peel died. That. He, he died in a plane, didn't he? He was shot down. Yes, he was shut down, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, the interesting thing is that it took um, – so that happened in 1917, and then if you shoot forward, it took um, uh, Flynn about 11 years to raise enough money uh, through investors to figure out how to get the, the service off the ground. Yeah. And so by the time it actually happened, it was – the first flight was from Cloncurry in Queensland to a little wonderful township called Julia Creek, not a long flight, um, but that flight was using a, a leased Qantas plane, and of course, yep. Qantas at the time was very new. And so we, um, yeah, that was the first flight, as we call it, and that was in May, and that's now 95 years ago. So well, our yeah, 100th birthday approaches. So it was aviation. It was also the development of radio, and we'll get back to that in just a second. I just wanted to uh, get to a couple of calls. Uh, a lot of people have suggested, is the In Like Flynn line... Um, <laughs> About John Flynn or is it about Errol Flynn? I've suggested it's about Errol Flynn, but someone says um, uh, that uh, it is mentioned apparently in Like Flynn. In fact, I've got Kate on the line who says Pat Drummond has written a song in Like Flynn to help raise funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. (laughs) G'day, Kate. Hello, Pav, and hello, Lana. Yeah, uh, probably about 30 years ago, Pat wrote the song In Like Flynn, he was given a challenge by New South Wales Premier John Fay to have a song written in 40 minutes and he'd give him $46,000 or something like that to give to the RFDS. And so, of course, Pat did it because he's a remarkable songwriter and singer and storyteller. And uh, I found it on ABC Illawarra just recently and I just mentioned to the producer you might be able to play it because it's a brilliant song and Pat's incredibly clever and he just lives in the next town from me. But... um. Yeah, so 
I just thought I should mention it because he didn't realise in like Flynn wasn't anything to do with John Flynn. But it was Errol Flynn, but he still went ahead and put the song in like Flynn. It's like get the fact, let the facts get in the way of a good story here. No, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's a good song. I've got to, I'm not sure if it's in the system. I haven't looked for oh, it. Oh, well, okay. But it's a great song. It's, you know, gets to the heart of the matter. Basically, we'll have a bit um, of a look for it. Uh, I right. can't see it here, but um, we'll have a bit of a look on the internet or something. That'd be good to hear, Kate. Yeah, it's on, it's on the ABC Alora Facebook page. All right, we'll have a look. Okay. Kate, thanks, Kate. All right, no worries. Bye. Were you aware of that song there at all, Lana? No, but there are so many songs that yeah. are either about the Royal Flying Doctor Service or about this history. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's many of them. Um, I have, uh, to my knowledge, in like Flynn is not um, a Reverend John Flynn um, yeah. statement, but maybe it is referring to him. I don't know, but yeah, I don't I, think I, so. Somehow, I don't think so. No. It would be nice, but it's not. <laughs> no, I think uh, it sounds more like Errol than uh, Reverend John, I would have thought. Uh, uh, now, Robin says, uh, I have a copy of Flynn of the Inland printed in 1936, and it's quoted in the book, and maybe you're correct. I'm not sure what that last bit is. But, yeah, so John of the Inland, uh, Flynn of the Inland printed in 1936. He, you know, that's uh, his role, I suppose, and that, that particular publication there is quite famous, isn't it? It is. And I uh, see, I think you have to remember back at that time, you know, obviously um, communications were, were critical. And so he produced a few really key publications that became um, uh, almost um, almost like the foundation of, of the service today. So as an example, one of those was a medical chart. And it's a really simple chart that um, shows a body of a person um, and each part or each section of the body has a number on it. And if you have a look on a $20 note, um, not this most recent version, but the version before it actually has a reproduction of that chart. Uh, And that chart was used to be able to describe, um, once radio had become more common within stations and so forth, to describe where a pain was being felt. So you could say, oh, it's number two or, oh, it's number four on the right side. And then that way the doctor knew exactly what body part you were talking about uh, for a patient who maybe doesn't quite know what goes where within their body. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Pretty handy little identification chart. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned radio there. I mean, that was the other thing that uh, without radio, uh, the service would not have been able to be as successful as it was. But not only that, uh, the fact that they were able to extend radio communication to a lot of these remote places meant that they were able to use the the radio chat room, almost like a chat room, as well yeah. as uh, to start yeah. this thing called the School of the Air. So... In many ways, just providing medical assistance by radio was also they were able to use that service for other things as well. Yes, so there's um, the, uh, famously known the hour um, uh, during the day, which I think is twelve to one, where essentially it's open radio channel. So if you um, talk to anybody, uh, of course, we don't today use um, open radio. Uh, the way it was being used back then. Yeah. Today we have different technologies. But at that time, um, between those times, anybody could communicate 
across the airways using the Flying Doctor radio. And everybody had a, a Flying Doctor radio at a station. Um, I've, I did an interview with a, a minister who was a, a padre, they call him, you know, Flying Padre, and he used to fly around in his plane to minister services and christen babies and do weddings and so forth. He had a Flying Doctor radio in the back of his car in the 70s. Um, so everybody had a Flying Doctor radio, and between... Um, that uh, hour noon, um, it was pretty much open so that anybody could um, jump in and say, hey, g'day, you know, what's happening over here, what's happening over there, or giving news or updates. You could ask questions, you could um, just generally chat. And so everybody would turn the radio on just to hear what was happening (laughs) around the the traps. Um, And there's a a number of lovely stories of... um, of people using the radio to organise relationships, uh, romances, um, you know, field days, you name it, um, get-togethers, weddings. Um, that was the time to, to organise it. It sounds like a precursor to the ABC Country Hour, almost. <laughs> it might even have been a precursor to social media these yeah, days. I don't enough. know. It's sort of a, a bit of a everybody jumps in. The interesting story about the radio is, um, so Alfred Traeger, uh, an Australian, had um, famously invented uh, a pedal radio uh, so that you didn't have to have electricity to be able to power the radio. And and it was this particular inception which allowed radio uh, sets to be able to be sent out to remote stations all across the country and then the the operator would pedal and that would generate enough electricity for them to be able to get this radio message across. And initially it was, um, you know, just a sort of a Morse code, but then by the early 30s it was actually voice that was able to get across. And, and that changed the landscape for us in Australia for everything because at the point where you can then communicate and you can get access to health, of course, having families, schools, all sorts of things suddenly becomes possible. So, uh, yeah, so that school of the air that we still have today was founded originally through those radio systems and the Flying Doctor itself was also uh, founded by that system, that communication system. I wonder if John Flynn would have ever envisaged that the the service would have been used for education as well as for for medical emergencies. Lana, let's head to the phones, have a touch to Don. G'day, John. Hello. Hi there, John. Hello. How are you going? So you've you've, uh, had some connection with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, have you? Yeah, my sister in the late 80s, she was in Brocken Hill. Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, John. Yeah, and um, she got sick. She was on a, bro- a farm about 200 k north of bro- Brocken Hill. They were visiting some people and she got a fever and she just collapsed. Yep. And they said, we better do something. And she's there just for a few for a five and then So they called the phone and they landed about half an hour later and they took her to um, Brocken Hill. I think they took her to Dabra. I'm not, I think there's a hospital, at, but they couldn't. I had to take her to Dubbo. Yeah, had to and, um, step up a bit. And they fixed her up. And um, so I always give every year. I'm very close to my sister, Catherine. And um, I give every year as much as I can to the flying doctors. I bet you service. do. Uh, yeah. I give it up, send it up at Sydney. Nice work, send John. Thank you for that. There's, there's a story. I know there's a connection with the Royal Flying Doctor Service and Broken Hill. And I mean, 200 kilometres away to the, the Broken Hill Hospital and then another few hundred kilometres to the Dubbo Hospital. It just shows you like a, a medical emergency like that one. I mean, if it wasn't for the RFDS, John may well have lost his sister there, you would have to say, Lana. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Broken Hill is one of our oldest bases. And in fact, Broken Hill is where um, Queen Elizabeth actually went in 1952, I think it was, or 53, um, went and visited and, and talked over the radio to to people on remote stations. And it was there that she gave us our charter, the Royal Charter. So we became the Royal Flying Doctor okay. Service in the early 50s from Broken Hill. And so we still have that recording. I think it's in the archives somewhere. Um, uh, you can hear um, the, the late Queen talking about the service and talking to people who are on remote stations from Broken Hill. And one other thing that was mentioned there by John was about how he gives money every year. The Royal Flying Doctor Service does receive some money from the government, but really most of the contributions come from, from the public, don't they? They're actually char- the charity drives, and every now and then you'll see uh, yeah. them collecting money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. It's an important part of the organisation, isn't it, to keep those funds coming in? Yeah, look, um, the the RFDS is a, is a health charity, but it's also part of the national health system. So about one third of our operational budget nationally uh, comes from the federal government and is part of that whole Medicare scheme, which is the universal healthcare system that we enjoy here in Australia. Um, that means that if you live on a remote station and you need to see the doctor or um, see even the dentist or whatever it might be, those services are free as part of um, our universal healthcare system. About one third of our operational budget comes from state governments and the remaining third is what is covered through donations, philanthropy, bequests, fundraising and that sort of thing. So we're a unique organisation. There's not actually anything like us or at least not the size of us anywhere else in the world. There are other flying doctors services but not the size of us. Mm. Um, so we, I jokingly say that we have a, the biggest waiting room, um, which is 6.79 million square kilometres. Uh, we have 23 aerobases and we have 79 planes, which makes us actually the third largest airline in Australia. Uh, and we have 2,500 staff. So, and a big shout-out to all those that are working 24-7 at the moment. They're out there somewhere on shift. A big shout-out to all of our great staff who are so dedicated and Indeed. helping. Indeed. Keep up the great work, everybody. Uh, we, you know, the country have got a lot to thank you for. So, uh, look, actually, I think I may have one of your ex-staff here on the phone. Bill's called us from the Sunshine Coast. G'day, Bill. G'day. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, I'm, a, I'm a retired surgeon and I work for uh, uh, just about every health system around Australia after I retired, in inverted commas. And uh, I was uh, relieving out at uh, uh, broom, and uh, I uh, had taken out a, uh, uh, a young lad's appendix, and uh, he—I actually found that he came from Derby. So um, it was a Sunday morning. I was out there uh, relieving, and uh, I uh, didn't have my wife with me, so uh, I'd sort of take my time uh, on the Sunday morning doing the ward round and sort of chat to everybody, which was uh, always great. There were plenty of stories. But uh, having been a, a flyer myself, I was uh, I, I found that this lady's, uh, or this boy's mother, was uh, a pilot for RFDS. And uh, so I started telling some of my stories about flying, as flyers do. And uh, <laughs> she... She started uh, telling me this story, or she told me this story, which I I really couldn't top, but she said it was a black night. She was uh, flying a Pilatus Porter plane out of Derby, heading for Perth, 
And in the back, she had a sick patient. She had a nurse and she had a doctor. And uh, anyhow, she as she climbed out of Derby, no moon, black outside, and uh, she was levelling out at 14,000 feet and she noticed that the power diminished on the plane so she sort of pushed the throttles in a bit more and no response and then there she is at 14,000 feet the engine stopped in the Pilatus Porter which is a single engine plane but there's no so there's no plan B and um, so she she turned the plane and headed towards Derby to try and get back but of course I don't know how she managed the VHF lighting because it goes out after a while so she'd have to turn that on no power from the engine and anyhow she eventually uh, got back to the strip and landed this Pilatus Porter at night and with the the cockpit covered in oil Hmm. so she'd have had to side slip the plane to get in and then straighten it at the last minute because she could only see out of a little bit of perspex on the left. And, and, and down she, she got, and of course, as she uh, rolled down the runway to, till the plane came to a stop, she was just sort of, you know, you can imagine the relief that she had, just sort of dropping her head and thinking, thank God for that. And uh, the next minute she felt this huge uh, clamp around her and it was the doctor who'd come up from the back of a plane and uh, thanking his lucky stars for this woman but uh, but the amazing stuff that happens out there and it never gets reported <laughs> because apparently one of the bolts in the oil cooler broke, gave way and uh, so all the the cooling, the oil in the aircraft just uh, ended up over her windscreen. I mean, we often don't, you know, it's bad enough that uh, they've got to deal with all the tragedy along the medical side of things, let alone they're actually flying a plane and the dangers of flying light planes around the country. What an incredible story, Bill. Thank you for sharing it with us. It's a pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Jeez, Look, I could almost talk to Bill for a bit longer there. if Because uh, what, what an amazing story. Look, there's a couple of things that come out of that. First of all, about... There, have there been many aviation accidents that the RFDS have been it's involved been surprisingly in? Surprisingly few over almost a hundred years. There's been surprisingly few, yeah. um, and um, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a fatality in in decades. Um, but when you run a large airline, and when you've got all those planes to maintain and to um, we have different types of planes that fly, that fly in different parts of the country. So that's based on state regulation. So um, in the West and in uh, South Australia and Northern Territory, we have the Pilatus, um, which are, are lighter, cheaper to run, amazing Swiss planes. Um, but then on the Eastern Seaboard, um, we uh, fly Beechcraft, which are dual propeller um, so different planes, different parts of the country. But I, our pilots are, are just brilliant. We have really high qualifications mm. for somebody to be one of our pilots. And okay. so it's well over 3,000 hours that they have to have done. And, of course, you have to land on dirt strips. You have to land yeah. in all weather. You have <laughs> to determine, you know, is it safe to take off? Is it safe to land? Um, and, and so I think um, in terms of from an historical perspective, I, I really feel that, 
uh, our service has only been able to survive or exist as long as it has because of the partnership and the work with with the local communities. Yeah. I'll give you an example. So if you lived on a remote station, the only way for a plane to land there is for you to have a strip, and that strip um, needs to be either regularly maintained or at least cleared of wildlife or stock yeah. uh, so that the plane can land. And, of course, none of them or very, very few of them have permanent lighting. So that means that the, the, the uh, station people must go out and light that uh, runway in some fashion and there's been all manner of ways that's been done over time from burning dunny rolls with diesel <laughs> 44 to... gallon drums I imagine there would have been all sorts of things look uh, I just, oh, just yeah. I just should ask Bill are you still there yes, Listen, yes what was the name of that pilot look I can't remember no, the okay. name um, but uh, it's a story if she were listening she would uh, recognize the story because she was she was uh, she was not a skite or anything she was just no. Very, a very humble, humble person and a, and a lady doing her job, and an amazing, and amazing pilot by the sounds of it, Bill. Amazing, yeah, yeah. absolutely amazing. If there are any aviators listening, they'll understand how how incredible that story is. Yeah, no, look, yeah. uh, thank you, Bill. Because look, I did want to bring up something else from that, which is, I mean, Australia has a very rich uh, tradition as aviatrixes, and a lot of wonderful women pilots in Australia. You hear a story like that, and um, you know. You think, yeah, well, she was obviously one of them. Um, there was also the Royal Flying Doctor Service was, in a sense, um, also a place where women pilots and women doctors got together. Some of the earliest women... Uh, when, when was the first Royal Flying Doctor Service uh, woman pilot doctor? Uh, oh. It was quite early in the picture, wasn't it? It was. I mean, I think if we go back... Um, oh, gosh, you're challenging me now, Michael. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, there's a... a a um a pilot who and a doctor who was famously came to be known as the sugar 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 bird lady. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yes, um, and so she was based in Western Australia, and she came to be known, and I can't remember her full name now. Robin, Robin Miller, I've got it here. There we go, Robin yeah. Miller. So, yeah. There we go. It's a bit too early in the morning for me. Um, so she became quite famous because she used to do immunisations of um, of children, both in um, uh, remote communities, including um, Indigenous communities, using sugar cubes. Okay. And and so um, she would fly in with her with her plane and land, and then would deliver um, medical health services and immunisations and that sort of thing. Um, often using these sugar cubes as a as an incentive for kids to to actually take what they need to take. I've got here Beth Garrett. Apparently, was the first female pilot for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Someone sent that in. Oh, look, I, I, what, before we go into that, I, there's one thing we need to mention that we have been very remiss so far in not mentioning, and that is the nurses here, Lana, because they're a big part of this story too, aren't they? They're huge. I I, I do a podcast called the Flying Doctor Podcast, and. Recently, I was interviewing one of many flight nurses that I've interviewed, and I jokingly said, you know, maybe we should be called the flying nurse um, service. <laughs> I know the doctors all cringe when I say that. But our nurses play a massive role in in our service. And uh, everything, they must be emergency ED trained. Um, often um, they have to be midwives to be able to deliver babies. Uh, and they often are the only one on a flight that goes out to yep. deal with all manner of things. So our flight nurses are absolutely incredible. They'll be doing everything from performing operations to just basic nursing duties, I would think, and doing it remotely by 
a bit like here at the Morse code story, doing doing an operation by Morse code, isn't it? <laughs> so definitely no Morse code these no, days. No, but it is. It's it's a uh, very by, good peer support system in place at this time. <laughs> but they might would they be doing operations by correspondence through the radio or? Uh, what these days? Yeah. Um, look, these days, if there was an operation needed, a yeah. uh, person is generally um, stabilised and gotten off to a tertiary hospital. Yeah. So whether that's in Sydney or whether it's in in um, Queensland, in Brisbane or in Adelaide or, or Perth um, or even Darwin. So it, uh, depending on the accident or the yeah, injury, the, the key thing is just keeping a person alive and getting them to the surgery that they might need. We need to mention the nurses there, I think, because uh, they are often overlooked, in the, not only in this story, but I think in generally in, the, in medicine. Um, I've got, look, there's a thing here, is angel flights apparently have had a few dreadful accidents lately and fatalities in the past few years. Um, I don't remember that, Chris, but I do, I'm aware of angel flights. It's a similar service, but a, a little bit, what's different between the RFDS no, and angel very- flights? No, Angel Flight's very different. So Angel Flight is um, a charity that operates off volunteers using their own planes, okay. using their own pilots, and essentially helping get people to take people from a remote location for, say, a cancer treatment or that sort of thing. And okay. it's a very small um, operation, great charity, but um, very different because from a um, – just even from a, a quality health standards, we're actually a health service, not just a transport okay. system. So um, basically yeah. they're transferring ill people to, uh, to and from hospitals and stuff in remote areas where you're much more hands-on dealing with the actual medical emergencies uh, on the ground there. Um, I've got actually one of your former patients, Noel, has called us from Forest Hill. G'day, Noel. Uh, g'day, Mike. Uh, You've had yes. calls to use the RFDS, have you? Yes, I was a young bloke, uh, 1958, this happened, I was a 19-year-old kid, uh, riding, a, riding a horse, I was one of those blokes, you know, everybody thought I was brave, but little did I know, but this little mare, she ran over on me on a dinner camp, Augustus Town, a place called Augustus Town, we're probably 30 miles from the station, dinner camp, like a mother musters together. I just looked at me, actually she broke my leg over the stirrup and I let the iron go on the near side, thinking she was going to rear up on me, I'd seen it done before, and... Uh, the stirrup went to ground my leg over the stirrup and the mare over, over the stirrup and everybody knew what had happened. We had a truck in the camp, luckily the cook had a truck for the tucker and all that sort of stuff travelling around, about probably, you know, 10 blokes in the camp. Uh, they put me on the stretcher on the back of the truck and took me into the station at 30 mile and that was Augustus Downs was around about, oh, 150 mile probably north of Cloncurry, close to Burketown. Well, this was about mid-afternoon. The... The wife at the station, the manager's wife, was a bit of a nurse and she knew what to do to put a split on it and bandage it up tight a bit, like tear my, tear my jeans and just... And uh, that got me by and the flying doctor came and took me back to Cloncurry. Incidentally, the doctor there was a one-legged doctor by the name of Jerry Mean. He was a good old bloke, a really good old bloke. Got on well with him. He didn't fly the plane, but he was a doctor. He'd lost a leg to polio as a kid himself. Right. But I was in Von Curry for quite a while, and uh, I was in there. They actually uh, had me in plaster. I was in plaster before sunset that afternoon, and what a relief that was. What a relief that was. You've got no you've idea. A, I bet you've always had a bit of a soft spot for the service since then. I, I, I donate to the flying doctor ever since. I still do. Always will. Always will. Yep. Great well, incredible story there. And uh, we should, Lana Clon Curry is certainly central to the, the Royal Flying Doctor yeah. Service story, isn't it? Absolutely. So that was where our first flight mm. took off from and went to Julia Creek. Yeah. Um, wonderful place. 
you hear a story like that and, you know, think, okay, <laughs> where would poor old Noel have been without the Royal Flying Doctor Service in that situation? In a lot of pain, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of pain. Mm. I think um, uh, through the Flying Doctor podcast, I've done interviews now with more than 70 people and, and those stories are um, as good and as varied as those calling in. Um, but it's amazing the trouble that people can get into when they're in a remote location, whether it's a snake bite or whether it's a rolling a car or yeah, look, whether just, it's... Just a, farming yeah. is a very dangerous occupation. Tractor rollovers, animal injuries. Yeah. I mean, that really is a difficult uh, job, you know. They're out there and they're remote and so it's a dangerous occupation because there isn't anybody necessarily around always to, to look after you. Look, I've just got to quickly ask you this question. We've only got about 30 seconds, so you're going to have to quickly answer it. Okay. Is it true John Flynn was a very strong Presbyterian? Was there much of a role played by the Presbyterian Church in supporting developments of the RFDS? They sort of were, weren't they? They were, well, they were just certainly in, as far as the inland mission went. The and inception so, before um, Flynn, the, the lead yeah, up to so it. Yep. Flynn was very much involved in setting up missions around the country initially as um, as part of the Presbyterian Church. Um, and so certainly the church was involved in his missionary work, but not involved as much. Um, in the actual service, uh, yeah. The actual service well answered, Lana. Look, thank you. Great talking to you this morning. Keep up the great work. 